0: There's a proverb of a man who was completely unhappy in his life. When he looked around at his job, he felt unmotivated and disheartened. When he looked at his house, he felt like it was not what he had wanted to build. It wasn't as good as the ones around him. When he looked at his wife, he didn't feel like he loved her anymore. He felt like she was constantly nagging him, that he didn't have the patience to deal with continuing in the relationship. And so he decided that he would seek a different life. He decided that he, the next morning, would wake up early before his wife arose, before people would be waiting for him at work, and he would start walking to find paradise. This man was a man of faith, so he believed that if he could walk far enough, he would finally get to the place of ultimate contentment and joy and satisfaction in life, where everything would be exciting and wonderful. So as was his custom, he fell asleep that night. But before he did, he put his shoes in the direction that he wanted to head out the next morning so that all he had to do was stand up, slip on his shoes, and start walking. And so he did. He got up before everyone else, left still in the very dark of the morning, started walking towards paradise through the hot heat the desert of where he lived and he finally got to a place that following night where felt like a good place for him to lay his head down and go to sleep and so as was his custom he laid down and he set his shoes towards the direction in which he knew he needed to continue heading tomorrow morning well unbeknownst to him in the middle of the night god flipped his shoes turned his shoes around to where he didn't know it, but his shoes were actually going to be going back towards his home, his wife, his job. So the next morning he woke up, he got on his shoes, he started walking, and much to his amazement, after a long day of walking, he saw paradise. And paradise looked just like What he had left. He was so excited that now he had come into the promised land and that God had made it look exactly like he was used to. He came in, he saw people he knew, but now, now his mindset was different. He was bustling with joy. He was excited to see everyone because now he was in paradise. He saw his home, his home in paradise and he saw how beautiful and wonderful it was how it met every single need he had he saw his wife and he was so excited that his wife in paradise was loving and making his favorite food and was excited to see him at the end of his day and at the end of the day he was so thrilled to be in paradise and he was so thrilled that paradise had met all of his expectations But in the reality of it, all that happened, all that shifted was a change in his perspective. He actually ended up going back to the exact same place that he left. But in the middle of it, he chose to believe that it was paradise. And in that, God had even done a work in him where he believed he was going to paradise. God flipped those shoes so that he would take that mindset, that new mindset, in order to live his current life as if it were paradise. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Pamela Hayes, who is a multicultural psychologist, which is very fascinating in and of itself, but she has also done great work in understanding four keys to well-being, one of which is reframing your perspective. I'm so excited for you to hear all of the great takeaways that I have for you at the end of this episode and all of the great nuggets of wisdom that Dr. Hayes shares with us let's dive in to today's episode. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others, and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. If you've ever wanted to know what your attractiveness score is, then I have a free guide that you're going to want to go and download. Now, I'm going to tell you that this isn't going to be like those quizzes or surveys or tests that you see online that are like, how hot are you or how sexy are you? Because I think those end up making people feel worse about themselves at the end than ever before. This free attraction assessment guide that I have created is a no gimmicks, truthful and honest representation of of how you can assess yourself and see the areas of attraction that you feel most confident in, and the areas of attraction where you need opportunity for growth. It's not going to be done in a way that makes you feel worse about yourself, but is going to give you real tools and tactics that you can begin to implement after you know which areas you should focus a little more on and which ones you're already slaying. You can go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. You'll see the opt-in form in the lower right-hand corner, and it'll be emailed to you immediately. I can't wait to hear about your results and your scores and the way that you decide to make some changes in your life so that you can be the most attractive that you can be. Go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Well, Dr. Hayes, what first brought you into the field of psychology?
1: Well, I didn't go into the field of psychology first, actually. I was much more interested in languages and cultures. and I when I left Alaska uh, when I was 17, I, I decided I wanted to move different places around the world. And so I started doing that, studying different languages like Spanish in New Mexico a couple of years. And then I um, went to Wales, country of Wales and studies Welsh and, and France for a year and, um, and, and uh, Hawaii for three. I always managed to pair it kind of with education or work. And along the way, uh, you know i i needed a job i needed to be self supporting so i'd always been interested in psychology and i wanted to be in a helping profession mm-hmm. so there was a program at the university of hawaii which specialized in cross cultural psychology clinical psychology sort of looking at psychology in different cultures and that was a great fit for me so i went to school there and from there just continued on. And actually my main field in psychology is multicultural psychology. I teach workshops on and write books on um, multicultural relations and culturally responsive practice for therapists. But I'm also, uh, I also use CBT cognitive behavior therapy a lot and I have clinical practice. So I wanted to do more work, work sort of teaching about that and writing about that. So, Yeah brought me up to where I am now.
0: Now, when you say that you studied languages, does that mean that you would immerse yourself and learn how to speak those languages? Or were you studying it from like a lexical point of view? What was that? What- no, I was studying from wanting to become fluent, but I didn't become fluent much. <laughs>
1: I, I actually, when I was in France, I did be, I did become fluent in French because I married a Tunisian man and he okay. emigrated when I was in Paris, we met in Paris, and he immigrated to the US with me. And we we were married for 16 years. So I became fluent French, but I don't I don't use French much anymore. And and now I'm studying Spanish. So (laughs) going back to the Spanish, which was the first one, you know, back in in New Mexico.
0: Did you find that Spanish was one of well, you said you became fluent in French, but did, did you find that Spanish or French were easier to learn than Welsh, or maybe some of the other languages?
1: Yeah, because actually, um, my husband, my former husband, was Arab, so I studied Arabic too and learned some oh Arabic living there. And, <laughs> yeah, and and so that's a big, that's like the greatest contrast. Is, yeah, you know, Arabic cause, because it's even read from right to left, and and the letters are different, so the letters don't match the sounds. You know, from an English speaker's perspective. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, Spanish and French are a piece of cake compared to that.
0: They have to be. At least we use the same letters, even if it's pronounced a little differently, same letters. (laughs) That's so so fascinating. So you got back to Alaska and now your day-to-day job is that you have a personal practice?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been back about 20 years and here and in Alaska, rural Alaska. And the first 10, I worked half time at the community health center and then half time with the um, Kenaitse tribes, denying a wellness center. And then these last 10 years, I've
0: been in private practice. Do you see a lot of different cultures in your practice up there?
1: You know, although Alaska is a lot more culturally diverse than people realize, people who live outside Alaska the area I live is not very diverse. The the two largest population, the largest population is white, but there is a substantial native population also. And there, there there's some Asian American people and Asian people and um, Mm -hmm. African Americans. Yeah. But it's not as diverse as say Anchorage is as diverse, maybe even more diverse as the U S as a whole. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it's like 35% or more people of color. And then, you know, we have, um, Large LGBTQ population and other diverse groups, a mosque and, in Anchorage too, and uh, Buddhist temples. And,
0: yeah. So there's a good mix of cultural diversity and all of those things. Now, there. the book that you have written, well, you've written a couple, but I think there's a good bit of them that are more professional based um, mm-hmm. textbook and things like that. But the, the book that you've written, Creating Well-Being, Four Steps to a Happier and Healthier Life. What led you to want to write this book?
1: The work with clients that I was doing. So I was trained primarily in cognitive behavior therapy. And I'm not a diehard CBT fan. You know, sometimes psychologists get into a particular theoretical orientation mm-hmm. and that's all they, that's, they think that's the living end. And but. I do think it's a really nice framework for addressing problems and helping people build well-being. It has a lot of concrete tools that people can use. And I wanted to put those tools in a book. I was teaching those to clients on a daily basis. And I just wanted to have something that I could refer people to for when they were done with therapy or people that don't want to do therapy, you know,
0: that they could read and have it right there. Mm, That's so helpful and an efficient use of your time Mm as well. (laughs) so the give us a sneak peek if you can what are some or all of these four steps that we can start integrating to have a happier and healthier life
1: well in my research i found that there were four main things that people seem to need or seem to be components of well-being the first one is what we call happiness but when we talk about happiness People often mean a couple different things. So, the first way of thinking of happiness when somebody asks you, Are you happy? is Are you experiencing positive emotion right now? So, if I were to ask you on a scale of zero to 10, how much positive emotion are you experiencing in this moment right now?
0: You know, mm-hmm. you can answer that. Do you want a- to answer it? Yeah, sure. I would say an eight. An eight.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the other way people often mean it is when they say, Are you happy? Like, are you satisfied with your life? Mm. Which is more like a cognitive measure, right? So if you answered that, what would you say on a scale of zero to 10? Six. Yeah, and that often happens. They often don't match for various reasons. But one of the things that's helpful about this is that positive emotion is very hard to build directly. It's hard to say, I'm going to be happy today. Be happy, be happy, and yeah. just feel happy, you know, when things are going on around you. But it is easier to, it's a little bit easier to build your life satisfaction because we can take specific steps and we can think particular ways, interpret things particular ways that help us feel more satisfied with our lives. And the more satisfied you are with your life, the more likelihood of positive emotion. Mm. So that's the first element, the happiness piece of well-being. Hmm. The second component is health, physical and mental health, and those are very interactive. But they're not the same, that's not the same as disability. You can have a disability and still be very healthy. Um, but but health seems to be very important for, for well-being. Hmm. The third component is social engagement healthy social engagement that people have loving good supportive relationships with a give and take too giving as well as you know receiving and then the fourth component is purpose a sense of purpose feeling like what we're doing in life or is meaningful that who we are matters that we matter to other people so those those four things are key to well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. Those are so good. Couple of questions. The so does a person follow this like a journey, or is it something that's more cyclical in nature where it's constantly feeding, each of those are feeding off of each other?
1: I would say the latter. And the way I like to think of it is in terms of a path, that mm-hmm. we have two paths. So there's the path of well-being and there's the path the other path. <laughs> Path of not so well being. So we, I, I like this saying. It's it doesn't matter so much where you are now, but the direction you're pointed in. Hmm. So let's point ourselves in the direction in the towards the path of well being, and then start to take steps in those four areas that will help us stay on the path of well being. And this is where some of the tools come in. And sure, sometimes some things are going to knock us off the path. You know, like we. May lose somebody we love, and whoo, you know, mm-hmm. really, yeah. But if we're still pointed in that direction and we still keep taking steps toward that, we'll get back on the path. Mm-hmm. It's not like well-being. I mean, yeah, well, it's nice to think of well-being as a a goal, mm-hmm. but you know, things like that. I th- I actually think it's more helpful to think of as a process. So you. The, you don't beat yourself up when you're going through a period where you don't have much well-being.
0: <laughs> sure. And there's, and there's even parts of that. So the second one you spoke of, which was health, physical health, mental health. And what really stuck out to me is you said, even if you have a disability and I'm going to take some liberty and maybe stretch that a little further of saying, whether it's a physical disability or something you're struggling with mentally going through a period of high anxiety or depression, right? that could affect your health or the way that you feel about your health in that moment, which could then affect how you feel about your happiness because you're not having positive emotions in the moment. So do you feel like of all four of those, that health piece could be one of the bigger obstacles for people to overcome? Or do you think each of them have their own set of obstacles that at any point could take people off the path? I think
1: the latter, Yeah. well, you can see that these four areas overlap too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would say there are obstacles. There are things that happen, just happen to us that can pull us off the path in any of these areas. And then there are things we can uh, do or not do that take us off the path. I, you know, when I talk about action steps... And I look at solutions to problems or to stress or to feeling better in two main categories. First category are those where you can take some action, um, do something different, change your environment or change your behavior. The other set of solutions are those that you use when you can't take direct action that can be like a disability or medical problem where you've done everything you can, or somebody else's behavior, like your partner or spouse's behavior. You can't directly change your partner. Right. Uh, but with those, we know that we the way we think about things can help us feel better and not get so down. So going back to the the action steps though, there I, I have an acronym which I can share with you a minute if you want that summarizes the main areas of action people can take. Mm. There are some with regard to health that are harder than others. And I think the hardest ones are the ones that we think of first, which are get plenty of sleep, eat healthy and exercise. Right. Those, those are just the really hard. I call them self care, but mm-hmm. if we're going to do self care usually with people. I start with self care that's easy and nurturing in a way that you, oh, wow, you're just sort of waiting for permission to do it because it'll just build you up and feel, help you feel better immediately. If you haven't been exercising at all, going out and working on a treadmill probably isn't going to make you feel great immediately. <laughs> it's going to make sure. you tired, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. What are some of those things? So what are some of those lower barrier to entry? People are waiting for permission to go do this that you encourage people to do to, to focus on their health.
1: Well, I tend to focus on things that are very, very easy because mm-hmm. when people come to see me in my practice, they're already up to here with stress and things they're trying to do, manage too much. So it has to be super easy. I say uh, you're 100% doable. In fact, you're just kind of waiting for somebody to suggest it, like go for a massage. Mm-hmm. Now these days with COVID, that's not so much an option, but mm-hmm. take a hot bath, a hot bubble bath. Uh, You know, lock yourself in the bathroom. If you have kids, Uh, put a cartoon on and, you know, music and candles if you want and just give yourself a half an hour or uh, go. We live near a beach here, so we have access to a beach or go go out in the woods and go for a walk. Mm. Read something inspirational. I'm big on inspiration, looking for inspiration from people, things you listen to, podcasts, um, things you watch.
0: Yeah, those are some examples. Those are good. And, you know, it is it is true, just thinking about this permission thing. And when you mentioned the thing about the kids, it it brought to mind a lot of women I know, whether they're single moms or just, you know, during the day they are single moms because the dad is gone, they don't have much help, especially now kids aren't back in school. They can, it can be very draining but there's so many women I've spoken to and it's like, they feel guilty for trying to even just taking 10 minutes for themselves. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? You know, I, well, I think
1: women in particular were socialized to be caregivers, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's a piece there and we get reinforced for it. You know, it feels good when people appreciate you, but also, that guilt part of beating ourselves up when we're not doing for other people mm. or taking care of ourselves. I think we're, we all seem to just go towards the negative first, you know, um, we're, I've, I've heard that explained as, um, it's, what was as it? a saying like it's well, anyway, I'm, sp- I'm spacing the, the saying, but, but we do all tend to be hard on ourselves first, and it's much more difficult to talk to ourselves in kind ways that are encouraging and supporting the way we do with the people we love. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings up one of the tools that I use a lot in therapy with people. I, I use it on myself too, family and friends. I call it compassion voice. So if you think of how we all have these two voices in our head, we have the harsh, judgmental voice. That says, "Oh wow, you look awful in that." Or, "Oh, you know, you you gotta pick it up. You you need to be doing this and that." It has a lot of shoulds in it. You should be feeling this. You shouldn't be feeling that. You should be doing this. Blah blah blah. Really negative. And then there's this other voice that's a compassionate kind of voice that you use with your child when you're feeling full of love for your child or or your spouse or whoever and you may not even like what they're doing but if you're telling them that it's in a way that's caring so when you're in that what i call that judgmental harsh voice there's no room for compassion and judgmental voice is not just about making judgments because we have to make judgments every day right we have to decide what's healthy what's helpful and so on but judgmental voice introduces this superiority thing uh if it's towards others it's i'm Smarter than you, I'm better than you. I know more. But if it's towards ourself, it's you're. I'm a loser. I'll never measure up. Blah blah blah. When we're in compassion voice, there's no judgmentalism. It's just a caring kind of thing. So I help people build this compassion voice toward themselves and also toward others. Like if Mm -hmm. a person's really irritated, frustrated with their family member or someone they work with. tools for that too, like how to help yourself grow your compassion voice.
0: Hmm. What is one of the ways people can start doing that? Well, one way I pull from
1: a Buddhist Buddhism is the concept of looking for suffering. When we see another person's suffering or know another person's suffering, it tends to open up compassion in us and caring even if even if the person irritates us you know if somebody's getting on your nerves and then you find out that they just someone they just love died or they're suffering from a chronic disease or something like that it does just sort of open something up in our hearts Mm -hmm. that we feel more connected to them and i go back to this saying of the dalai lama it's the greatest source of human unhappiness is disconnection from one another I like to flip it and say the greatest source of human happiness is connection with one another yeah. and especially with our partners. When we feel connected, oh, it's the wonder it's the most wonderful feeling. We can handle disagreements, we can handle conflicts, all sorts of things if we just feel loved by the other person and accepted. So, what so one of the ways to grow compassion voice toward others is is looking for the other person's suffering. And I can give you um, an example of this. I, I was seeing this young woman who she had a supervisor who would come and stand over her when she was doing her written work. And he would just stand there and criticize her. And and she was young, you know, he was older and more experienced and she just had so much distress related to, to this. So I was teaching her this and we were trying to one of the ways to get at a person's suffering is if you know them really well you can often know how they how they suffer but with her when I asked her questions about this guy she didn't know enough about him to even know like if he had a partner if he if he'd been divorced if he Mm -hmm. had kids or whatever Mm -hmm. so I told her well you know when I was in training I had this there I had this supervisor who did the same thing I would be sitting and he would come stand over me and you know, I asked him if you want to have a seat. No, no. He wanted to stand and kind of critical and stuff. And so I decided in my head that he must have hemorrhoids. And I, <laughs> when he came in, I would say, okay, his hemorrhoids are acting up, you know? So then it just give me a chuckle. And she just thought this was hilarious. So she used it with her supervisor. So, you know, if it's all in your own head, it doesn't have to be true. right? But just help yeah. loosen you up and be more open to the person than, you know, go ahead.
0: Right. Well, you know, but that's so good. I mean, it's similar. It is it is different, but it is similar to the, you know, when you're public speaking, just picture everyone in their underwear. It's you're wow. telling yourself something that is calming you and helping you to realize the humanity of the other person. And it is so true. I know for me, how often we go to that worst case scenario. So not only for things with ourselves, but the reasoning behind people, why people are doing what they do, when mm-hmm. in reality it could be a ton of different things. That if we did know the story, we would have more compassion.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and you're you're touching on another tool that's one of my favorites, which I'll just mention here. I call it the most generous interpretation technique. Mm. Uh, and the way I explain this is okay. If I'm if I come home and my husband and I'm remarried now, so um, if I come home and I'm, You know, I walk in the door and I snap at my husband. The way I explain it to myself or him is, yeah, I know I snap, but you know, I was tired and I was hungry, it'd been a long day, and he just hit me right away with a big question. So you can hear the generosity in my explanation of my behavior. But then if I come home one day and I walk in the door and he snaps at me, I think, yeah, he snapped at me. He's being such a jerk. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no no generosity in that at all it's just boom, right to the the worst uh, interpretation so the idea is to look for that generosity in your explanation of other people's behaviors too
0: mhm i love that and it's something that at least i don't believe it necessarily gets easier but it gets easier to be aware of it mm-hmm. so I, I don't, I mean, I've been, <laughs> so I've been married for 10 years and I teach people about relationship stuff, right? I have my master's in psych- psychology. I'm getting my PhD right now. And, but I still don't have all this right. I still struggle with exactly what you said. I'm more generous about my, what I have done than what my husband does. But I try to at least be quicker to realize where I'm being judgmental. Where am I being wrong? How can I continue to improve my behavior? Because we're never going to be perfect, right? Uh-huh, right. Never going to be perfect. But that also doesn't give, you know, just unlimited grace for me to continue being a complete jerk myself. Like we have to we have to keep constantly working on it. One of the things that, that you mentioned, though, so talking about the social connection to other people, and we're at a really interesting time in a lot of ways right now with a lot of disconnection. So not even physically, although that is one, but also, I don't even know if I would call it politically, although that's, I think that's how we're seeing it. But I, it's like between peoples, we're just becoming more and more disconnected. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that you encourage people to bridge that disconnection in their own lives? Well, this compassion
1: voice is a good one. And looking for suffering and most generous interpretation technique, when someone, even with someone that you disagree with about politics or social issues or whatever because like you said those approaches cognitively they they help you emotionally connect and they i like i like the way you put it they help us recognize our common humanity mm-hmm. that even though we have these differences there's nobody that we're completely in agreement with anyway even our partner spouses mm-hmm. we, yeah and so at some point we decide okay this level of difference is tolerable this well but this level of difference is not tolerable so i'm not going to be friendly with this person or whatever one thing i live one thing i like about being back in a small town because for the first 20 years of my adult life i lived in major big cities um and now these last 20 i've been back in the small town one thing i do like about small towns is i think people are more inclined To keep connections with each other, even when there's disagreement around political, social issues. Hmm. Because you could very well, I mean, commonly end up sitting next to somebody at a meeting or, you know, a religious um, ceremony or wedding or funeral or whatever. Somebody that you are polar opposite with. But, um, you know, you want to get along. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah. It just it makes me think of even just the way society has evolved the past several decades into where we really are able to It's not like what you just said. Like the small towns they they're less and less common and even if they are there people might work away from it or, you know, can't be working from home and not getting out in the environment much. And so when you think about how We were created to be as humans living in society, in a community. If we were always seeing the same people, like we would need to figure out how to get along. Mm -hmm. In order for just, I mean, for just basic human survival, you'd have to figure out how to get along. Mm -hmm. And that, since that's no longer a need for us to survive, how disconnected... I'm just processing all I'm processing all of this as you're talking. And it's like, it makes so much sense and it's combining so many things that I've been reading and thinking about lately Um, and makes me miss. I've talked so many times, my husband and I've talked to each other about how we miss, we both grew up in the nineties before there was internet in every home before, you know, text messaging or even felt like I remember beepers. And so (laughs) it's like, gosh, I wish my kids could grow up in that. I wish my kids could grow up in a world where they knew what it was like to not have a phone all the time near you. They knew what a dial tone sounded like, like all these things. It makes you miss it makes you miss some of the simpler times. You know, it's ironic though that at a
1: time when there is this feeling of such disconnection, at the same time there's incredible connection. <laughs> Mm. You well know, with, say, for example, I see somebody in my practice who has a problem, uh, whether it's a medical or psychological or whatever, that's the only person I've ever seen with that issue. I can just go online or they can go online. They probably already have by the time they come to see me and find a chat group of people with that problem or mm. in that situation. So in that sense, it's, yeah, it's, we are more connected too. Yeah. And we are very, very dependent in some ways now um, on, well, I don't know if this is more so in a small town or not. In a small town, you have to learn how to do things that, because you can't find an expert that knows how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) In a more urban area, there's somebody you can pay that knows how to do that, you know.
0: Where you live in Alaska, do you, how, like, if you were to fly to where I live in Tennessee, and then you were to fly home, how would you get home? Is there a, is there an airport right where you are? Do you have to take a boat? There, no, I'm not in a village where I, uh, yeah, there
1: there are a lot of villages where you can only get in by plane or, um or boat, but I'm on a road system. So I'm 150 miles from. Anchorage. So, but but typically we would, before COVID, we would fly the half hour flight from our town to Anchorage, Mm. have a couple hour layover, then fly from Anchorage to Seattle. And then mostly, you know, Seattle to Hawaii or anywhere in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. Long haul. (laughs) Yeah. I used to teach workshops around the country and it would, (laughs) yeah. And plus you have the four hour time change too. So it's, it, it's it's a pretty big thing. And then with COVID now, nobody's doing that anymore. So it's all on.
0: Yeah, there, which just like you said, yes, we are able to be more connected than ever. So in a way, I I remember when this when everything started, I said, what a great time in history for this to happen. Because if it had been 30 years ago, how much more of an economic impact would have had because you can't do things online you can't really do remote like you know so at least we could still stay connected digitally um however there's fatigue of it right like i get to a point where i'm sick of looking at a screen all day i feel like i want to go and be in the real world and Uh, or like hug people or touch people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I remember six weeks after not being able to go to my parents' house, I was just crying of wanting a hug from my mother, right? Like I'm 30 years old and I'm over here like, I just want to hug my mom. (laughs) I just miss hugging her. And I realized so many things I had taken for granted. And so how do you recommend people like... Move where we are now. Like, what are some tools that people could use to not get fatigued, to still stay connected, um, and to be really intentional about the relationships that they're making?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I do this in my daily life because when I f- first moved back here, uh, we did have internet, but I was used to my relationships, my friendships being connected to my work. And here I was sort of on my own work wise. Um, and I mean, there, there are a couple other psychologists, but it wasn't like so easy. It wasn't very easy for me to meet people with common interests. So I've cultivated relationships in, in nearby to in Anchorage and Homer, which is a smaller town down a few miles away, 80 miles away. And I had, now I have a few friends here as well, but Um, The kind of things I would do is, well, stay in touch via email and now text messaging. Um, And I have a couple younger friends that are really good at this, that I've kind of learned from that, you know, that just will text a thing of, um, hi, thinking of you, you know, and uh, this one friend lives in Anchorage. And I, like you, I grew up before text. That would never occur to me to just (laughs) Well, you don't send a card in the mail very often, thinking of you. But that's another way too, you know. Is now post office mail is this totally special thing if you get a card from somebody? So I send cards too. Um, I I keep notes about people I don't see very often that I feel really they are really special to me when I'm with them. Oh, I just love being with them. But well, like there's some people I only see at the at a convention that I go to I used to go used to go to once a year, you know. And then this year when they held the well you but you're you're in psychology, your field. It was the American Psychological Association. So this year, you know, they had their convention all online. Uh and so right before the convention, I sent emails to some people that I would have seen at the convention that I only see once a year. And I said Oh, I'm going to miss seeing you. And I updated them about my life, and and oh, then they responded goodness. and told me about what was going on with them. Yeah. The other thing I do is I uh, write an annual holiday letter. It's a funny letter, not not like we traveled here, or we traveled there, and you know, just about my family and close friends here and what we're doing, and and to send that out. So um, little ways like that. I have now that some of us are comfortable with cooking for each other uh you know I'll bake muffins and take them to a friend not not everybody's comfortable with that and um you know little things like that yeah
0: being mindful right yes uh huh yeah
1: yeah when i first moved away i you know i was really young i was 17 and by the time i was 18 i was living overseas and one of the things i did in my head And I was so lonely. And at the time, my family was kind of breaking apart. I, in my head, would make this map of the different places I'd lived. And I would have little, like, star things next to people I cared about in that mental map that I had. Mm. And I could view that mental map of the people in these different places that I felt loved me.
0: Hmm. That's so sweet. I love that. I love that. Well, if you send out your, which I'm sure you will, your holiday one this year, you could talk about all the places you traveled. You traveled to your bathroom, to your kitchen. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Maybe I'll do that. Like, look at all the places we went. It's just a map. (laughs) Great idea.
1: I think I will do that. (laughs) <laughs> you, you totally
0: should well dr hayes uh where can people get your book f- connect with you or uh learn more about what you do
1: well i have a website uh dot and my last name hayes doesn't have an e in it so it's just uh dot com. and if you're a therapist i have uh all my books on there that you know if people are interested in those, and then the book Creating Well Being that's available on you know uh, you can get it from the publisher American Psychological Association, or you can get it from from Amazon or any place that sells books, bookstores. Yeah,
0: yeah, and what a great accessible tool for people to be able to use of understanding things that they can do um, to actually begin to make difference in their lives and move towards closing that gap, right? Closing the gap between the happiness they want to feel and the happiness they currently feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I love it. I love what you do. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. I've loved speaking with you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this, Kimberly. Here are my key Pies takeaways for today's episode with Dr. Pamela Hayes. The four Components of well being that Dr. Hayes mentioned were life satisfaction, health, social connection, and purpose. Interestingly, every single one of these correlates with what we teach with the pies, emphasizing being the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. With your health, having that self care and doing small things in order to move forward every single day is so key in being able to really focus on all these other components as well with life satisfaction, asking yourself, where is it that I am happy in life and where is it that I need to change my perspective or my actions to become happy in life? When we think of social connection, how can I connect more with the people in me? How can I really increase that emotional attraction of mine as I'm creating relationships that nourish and encourage me? And even purpose knowing your purpose, seeking your purpose, that really can fulfill that spiritual part of attraction as well. So my first key pies takeaway from today's episode is to point your feet in the direction that you want to go. This relates back to the proverb that I started this podcast with, but also one of the things Dr. Hayes said, where you do get to choose the perspective and the actions that you're going to take every single day. So point your feet, point your shoes in the direction you want to go. And remember that it is a process. Well-being is a process. That's why I love the analogy of the feet and the shoes. It brings up this thought of you're walking, you're journeying. It's something that is a constant thing you're doing. You're never going to get to the ultimate pinnacle. You're always going to be doing better every single day. My second key pies takeaway is to reframe what self-care means and what it looks like. I love how we talked about how diet and exercise and sleep are all forms of self-care. They're not just things that you quote unquote should do, which, you know, we shouldn't be saying things like that, but talking to ourselves with compassion, but instead view the way that you eat, the way you move throughout your day and the way that you sleep as ways that you're taking care of yourself for long term health. The third key pies takeaway, and maybe one of my favorite things that I heard her say in this episode is to ask yourself, what is something that you're 100% sure that you can do? but you're just waiting for someone to give you permission. Maybe it's to get eight hours of sleep. Maybe it's to take a 10-minute bubble bath. Maybe it's just to go on a 20-minute walk every single day, and you have in your mind told yourself how you can't, you don't have time, your kids won't let you, your spouse won't let you. You're just wanting someone to give you permission. I'm giving you the permission. As long as these are things that are good for you, that are moral and ethical, then I give you 100% commission to begin moving towards doing those things you know you can do. I'm not asking you to start a Whole30 tomorrow. I'm saying maybe you give up some sweet tea for all my Southern friends. Or maybe you are simply wanting to add 30 minutes in your day so that you can journal. Do those things, the ones you're waiting to do. Go forth and do them. Those are my three key pies takeaways from today's episode. But I also want to encourage you to go back if you listen to the part where Dr. Hayes and I talked about the compassion voice and the negative self-talk that we have about ourselves. I have a whole podcast episode where I talk about some key ways that you can stop negative self-talk. So be sure to go back through the podcast and listen to that episode where you can get even more research-based ideas of what you can do to change the way that you speak to yourself. And here's one bonus key pie's takeaway for you. Remember that the greatest thing that you can do in your relationships is to learn how to have compassion, compassion for yourself and compassion for others. Go get your free attraction assessment at itstartswithattraction.com. In this assessment, you will be able to self-assess yourself in all four areas of attraction to see the areas in which you could use the most growth and to identify the areas that you are already slaying it. Go get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well.